Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for December 23rd, 2021, the Build Back Never edition. I'm David Plotz. Get You catch what I did there? Last week was Build Back Later. This week it's Build Back Never. Oh God. Yeah, good. We are already right. swirling inside your rhetor- rhetorical cyclotron. It's really bad when you have to explain the joke in the first sentence. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C., on a COVID quarantine. I'm COVID quarantined here in Washington, D.C. Joining me from New Haven, maybe, is Emily Bazelon of the New Time, New York Times Magazine, or the New Times Magazine, <laughs> and Yale University Law School. Hi, Emily. Hey, David. And from parts unknown, John Dickerson of CBS Sunday Morning. Hello, John. Hello, David. Good morning. And good morning, Emily. I'm sorry you're in quarantine. Yeah, it's, well, we'll talk about it. This week, we're going to talk about Build Back Better, How Dead Is It, or Is It Really Dead? Then we will be joined by Azmat Khan to talk about her extraordinary investigation into the civilian casualties of America's drone war in the Middle East. Then season three of The Pandemic begins on Netflix with Omicron. Is it a catastrophe or just a disaster? We will kind of assess the state of the nation and our pandemic response as the holidays descend upon us. And uh, then, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. Joe Manchin, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin's decision to abandon the current iteration of Build Back Better, the huge $1.75 trillion social spending bill that Democrats and President Biden have been counting on. His abandonment has infuriated progressives. It's infuriated the White House, who have seen their best chance or perhaps their only chance of resetting social priorities and shoring up the social safety net disappear or possibly disappear, depending on how serious Manchin is about not supporting what's happening in this bill. So, John, Joe Manchin is either a petulant Maserati driving coal profiteer who thinks all his constituents are fentanyl addicts or a regular old politician squeezed by people who have an unreasonable expectation of what he could do. Which one is he? Well, he can be a combination of things, as we all are combinations of things. What it looks like happened is that they're negotiating, negotiating, negotiating. He's not moving, but he's been pretty clear about what he wants and where he won't move. Um, Progressives give up their gambit to try to pressure him. Negotiations continue. And then there's a period in this negotiations where the White House says, we're going to say we're putting this all on pause for the end of the year. But we're going to name you as the reason it's all going on pause. Manchin said, please don't do that to me. They did it anyway. He said, screw you, went on and said, I can't support this bill. Now they're talking again. He's back on the phone call with the uh, Democratic caucus in the Senate. So we're back to, you know, kind of trying to figure out what this ends up being, um, because it still does seem like it would be awfully crazy for Democrats to get nothing. So it's going to be a question of what can Joe Manchin support. And that's kind of where we were before, though there's now a lot of bad blood on the floor, to mix a metaphor. So, Emily, you know, there's increasing evidence that Manchin, you know, Manchin is, of course, a self-interested person. And he he no doubt wants to advance his his own financial interests, his own well-being, the particular uh, well-being of people in West Virginia. Um, And so, you know, he's 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 a. He's as self-interested as the rest of us. But there's a lot of evidence that he's acted pretty consistently throughout here. He's told them what he wanted. And he is in a position where he holds, if not all the cards, a huge number of cards because of who he is in the Senate. Yeah, I was looking back last night at an agreement he signed in July with Senator Schumer, which I thought was news, but it's not. It had been around for a long time. John reminded me. And the consistency is there. He does not want to sign on to what he sees as unlimited entitlements. uh, And so that affects the child tax credit in particular. He also doesn't want to have a kind of sunset that makes it seem like this bill is cheaper than it would be if those benefits were then extended. And he also has been unwilling to go along with some of the ideas for raising revenue that would have offset more of the costs. I I actually think that once they're past this, they're going to end up with the bill and it's going to 
probably have at least three things in it, some climate change spending, some extension of the benefits in the Affordable Care Act, and something else, universal pre-K, and maybe actually universal pre-K that is paid for in a responsible way, which the current version of the bill does not do. The current version of the bill presents universal pre-K in a way that lots of states are going to reject, and then those kids are not going to get universal pre-K. And so I actually feel like my own frustration with this bill all along has been that I've had trouble keeping track of all the parts of it. And if I have trouble keeping track, it makes me think that a lot of Americans also don't really understand what's in it, are going to have trouble really grasping what trillions and trillions of dollars are going for and what the benefits are. Trillion Whereas and trillion. What? Trillion and trillion. Well, it, originally, yeah. though, we were in the like four trillion range, right? It's making, come down. I was just making a joke. Sorry. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Sorry. You. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. I was excited. I said trillion instead of billion. <laughs> so I was patting myself on the back for that. Uh, and Mr. Joke. In any case, it seems to me that actually having a few things that are memorable and really are benefits that Americans can point to and credit to this Congress and this president would be more politically beneficial to Democrats and probably better policy. So I actually didn't find this to be that. I mean, obviously, like the optics of it are bad. This has been going dragging on for a really long time. I worry about the popularity of the provisions for those reasons. But in terms of policy outcomes, this seemed like it might be fine. So, Emily, the point you're making is one that Matt Iglesias and Jonathan Chait have been making, kind of combining their two views together is both there are both political reasons and policy reasons to not be that upset with what happened with Joe Manchin, because it focuses the, focuses the mind. The mind was always going to have to get focused. Turns out it happened in this way. It's causing a lot of agitab for various people. But the idea is that programs that are locked in forever are harder to kill than ones that you just let sunset. And then in order to get the math to work, Democrats had put together a bill that had a bunch of stuff that sunsetted, which meant you would have had temporary programs, including the child tax credit, which is a really important one, but is a super expensive one, that would have gone away. I would also just argue that Simon Bazelon, your son, Emily, and David Shore wrote a piece saying long ago, if you read the politics and the way they're going, the child tax credit, which looks like one of the things that's likely to fall out because it's so very expensive, should be means-tested. That way you can keep it, make it permanent, have it live, rather than having it die in the inevitable priority sorting that's going to happen when you have the thin majorities we do. That argument seems quite strong given where we are right now. So progressives are going to be disappointed with this bill if it comes through at $1.75 trillion in a mansion uh, adulterated and restrained version. They wanted it to be a $4 trillion bill at the beginning. And and there's a, a lot of progressives who were annoyed that, you know, that Democrats voted for the infrastructure bill and they passed the infrastructure bill, decoupling it from this, uh, the Build Back Better bill and making it less likely that that bill could, could pass with everything that they wanted in it. Um, in general, my question to you, Emily, is did progressives anchor their expectations in the wrong place? Did they anchor their expectations like before the election almost when they thought it was going to be a real democratic sweep and there was going to be this, these massive majorities in the House and Senate and they'd be able to get away with a lot of stuff and thus thought that there was, that there was more to, to do than they actually had the ability to do? Because once they saw there was a 50-seat Senate majority and there was no possibility of getting rid of the filibuster entirely with that 50 seats because of who was in the in the Democratic caucus feels like they they just needed to sort of thank thank their lucky stars for any win they got well I guess another way of thinking about it is you set the bar really high and you expect it to come down and if they had started in a more moderate place they would have now little right so what I don't understand is all the time that's passed and that's just because I have no view into the negotiations or really into like the personalities involved it seems to me that the most important part of the bill is the climate change provisions money that we're going to spend that's going to help us change how we consume energy and how we don't emit gases that are killing the planet and it's important to have some social benefit Democrats can point to as their contribution to the well-being of the American people. And, you know, that still could possibly be on the table. 
I also think this push to pass voting rights legislation is really important, though, as I said last week, I think this law does not do enough to protect our elections, and I would like to see them add provisions that would change the Electoral Count Act so that we make sure that, you know, when electoral counts come in, the states can't mess around with them. And I think there are other things Congress could do to limit the steps that conservative state legislators are taking to try to make elections more in partisan as opposed to nonpartisan control. John, you talked at the beginning about the poison that's now in the system, the rancor that's now in the system because of how the this fallout occurred this past week. Do you think there's any real possibility that Manchin jumps parties before the 2022 election? That he's just like, screw it, I'll, I'll be the Republican majority. I'll get myself a plum committee chair. I'll get myself a whole bunch of good stuff out of the Republican caucus and and possibly get in better shape for re-election next time around. Sure, yes, it's possible. I've asked him over the years, why are you staying in the Democratic Party? And, you know, if you looked at some of his votes in the past, particularly under the Trump administration, he was right where the rest of his Democrats were. So he has often voted as the Democratic, as his fellow Democrats have, and he says that's where his ties are. But, you know, things can change, um, and you can be offered lots of things in the new Republican majority. If you remember when Jim Jeffords switched and threw the entire control of the Senate to the Democrats, he switched from being a Republican in the early Bush administration to being an independent, he threw control of the body to the to the Democrats, and then he was allowed to keep his committee assignment. So you could imagine Manchin not even having to go all the way over to the Republican Party. He could be an independent and then still get some plums that Mitch McConnell might promise him. My guess is McConnell would find a way to not promise too much until he sees how things turn out. He might not need Joe Manchin as much as uh, that much if he does really well in 2022. Clearly, Manchin was ticked off not only in the way he cut off negotiations on this version of Build Back Better, but then also in what he said subsequently, which is essentially progressives think they can bully you until you change your vote. And that's not all progressive, because I think there are a lot that that basically did what Emily said, which is we're going to ask for the moon, and if you miss, you hit the stars. So ask for as much as possible. And then progressives decided, okay, we're going to we realized that we have limited options here, and so we're going to change strategy, which is when they allowed infrastructure to go forward. But another weird thing that's changed is in the coverage of all of this. There's a way in which a lot of the coverage in Biden's effort to get this done has been like watching a football game in the middle of a massive rainstorm. You would never expect the commentators to say, well, they're really having a tough passing day. Because the reason they're having it a passing day is because it's raining in a typhoon. It would be stupid to say that because everybody watching knows that the conditions limit the way in which you can play the game. Here, you've got the narrowest possible margin in the Senate, a three-vote margin in the House. The conditions of the game limit what a president can do. That means it's going to take a long time. It means it's going to be messy. And yet the coverage has been like, oh, this is a terrible setback. They were saying it was a setback in September, and since then... Biden has both found a way to keep the government open, deal with the debt limit, and pass infrastructure. So there's just been a kind of catastrophizing each bend so that when we get to what Manchin did, which is different than what's come before, it's almost like we've lost the language of how to talk about it. Everything is always a catastrophe. I I do think it's curious. Now, it's obviously not the job of progressive journalists or progressive politicians or any progressive to be nice to Joe Manchin. That is not, it's not your assignment. It's not, you have to be nice to Joe Manchin. I did, however, find as a matter of just pure tactics, the way people have talked about Manchin and cinema to be totally counterproductive to whatever their goals were, that there's this, this, this kind of viciousness and, and, and assumption of bad faith, which, you know, it might be true. Like, sure. I'm, you know, maybe Joe Manchin is only doing what he's doing because he has a coal trust and he all he cares about is ensuring that coal continues to be produced and he cares not one jot about the rest of the planet. Like maybe that's the case. But like just as a tactical matter, the the kind of a, the the nastiness with which the left has talked about Manchin and, and also cinema has felt has felt really uh, mistaken to me, really counterproductive. 
I mean, I feel like we could have a whole rant about this, which is the tendency on the left as well as the right, maybe more on the left, to go after um, seeming allies. Well, they do eat their own on the conservative side as well. Yeah. Look at the penalty they're trying to uh, make those Republicans who voted for infrastructure pay for voting for infrastructure Okay, that, good point. Yeah, I, was I mean, the whole, never the, Trump, the, whole, the whole never Trump world exiled from the party. Good point. Okay, I withdraw that. But why? Why are both sides so eager to eat their comrades right now? For some people, it's tactical. And it puts pressure on Joe Manchin, and it gets Joe Biden to offer a big, massive program because he wants to appease you rather than a pared-down-from-the-start program. But then at some point, there were a number of progressives who switched and said, okay, we recognize we can only get so much. Then there were some that still kept that virulent, highly personal attacks going. The problem is that our current politics incentivizes that kind of behavior for fundraising, for clicks on social media. And because those are the people you want to turn out in a non-presidential year, they have an outsized power. But they have this power because of their ability to get money and also get attention. So there's a rewarding, I guess my point is there's a structure that rewards them for that kind of behavior as well. Slate Plus members, lucky you, you get a bonus segment today where we're going to talk about the most useless and most useful years of education that we had. When is the time you learn the most? When is the time you learn the least? Uh, That's going to be our bonus segment. And of course, we do bonus segments on every GabFest for Slate Plus members. Membership is awesome. You get ad-free podcasts. You get free access to all of Slate's content. You get to support the work we're doing. You get bonus episodes of some Slate podcast shows like Slow Burn and Amicus. And it's it's fantastic. And it's very little. And right now, it's not only very little, it's $25 off for your first year. So if you get a Slate Plus membership this year, if you get it by December 29th, you will save $25 for your first year of membership. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Again, that's slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member. And actually, really good time to do it because we have our conundrum show coming up next week. And the bonus conundrums on the Slate Plus segment there are great. We've already recorded them. So you'll get extra bonus conundrums. So do it. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for a birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame. And I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We're joined by Azmat Khan, who published an extraordinary and grim investigation in the New York Times this week about the civilian casualties in America's air war in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan, the human toll of America's air war. It is a it's a fascinating and important story. It's also just a monumental feat of reporting. Osmat traveled to scores of bombing sites all over these the region to determine if what the Pentagon said about the bombing corresponded to what actually happened to people on the ground talking to the to the victims and the people who are the witnesses of these bombings and discover the time after time after time the Pentagon ignored or undercounted civilian casualties and essentially ended up never blaming itself for any errors when civilians were killed and wounded. The investigation suggests that there are almost certainly thousands of innocent people who were killed by U.S. airstrikes that we have never acknowledged and recognized or compensated. First of all, congratulations on what was just like a as a fellow journalist, like this is an astonishing 
piece of reporting, but it's also just, as I said, it's super important. Could you start just by telling us about a single vivid example from your reporting where you discovered a strike that had a much greater cost than the Pentagon acknowledged? Right. You know, I think the the most stark example is in a place called Tohar in Syria, which, you know, the there were lots of claims immediately after the strike, which occurred in 20, uh, 2016, July of 2016, that civilians, many of them, you know, as many as 200, the claims even rose to, had been killed in an airstrike there. And the Pentagon investigated and publicly in a release, they said, I think 24 civilians had been killed. You know, that was at such odds that I just thought, you know, I'd really like to see what that what that particular area is like and what happened. And so I requested the document of the military's own investigation and it, it took a while to get. And I went on the ground and it took a while to get the Turkish government to let me into this particular part of Syria. But when I got there, what I found were just dozens and dozens of people who had been killed, as many, ultimately I confirmed 120 had died in this event. And they were people who, you know, in the document that I would get later on would explain that, you know, they had seen people in quote unquote bongo trucks traveling to these outlying areas who were amassing for a counterattack, that as many as 85 ISIS fighters had been killed. But what I found was that these were ordinary people who at night would leave their houses near the front line to go sleep at night in these homes that were further from the front line. And there were just tons of people in these houses. And they woke up to their the roof on top of them. There's a little boy, you know, who has always moved me, like ever since I met him, who you know, was deeply injured and his parents called in every favor. They sold land, everything they could to get him this like $6,000 operation to graft skin from his legs onto his arm. And all of them, you know, I asked his, his relatives specifically, like, what would you like to tell the United States? And they said, like, please, like, look for civilians before you bomb a place, essentially, is what, what they said. Uh, and that was probably, I think, you know, extremely that in terms of the toll, the difference, you know, was the largest that I found there. But you can see this, you know, in in differences that are small between like, they admit one, but actually it was 21, or they admit two, and actually it was, you know, 15, you know, so many examples of that. And it's far more than just a toll. It's what went wrong and why and explaining these like obscure parts of the law and decision-making that people on the ground just do not understand, and often for good reason. So you're describing in you know incredibly vivid detail and with huge precision this cost of war. And it's been hidden from the American public in a lot of ways because of these obscuring documents and, you know, all the um, Freedom of Information Act requests and fights you had to get in with the government to get any information and then the very incomplete information that are in these documents. But I think what struck me was in some cases, it just seemed like the government had not heeded warnings about how imperfect their intelligence was, that there might have been children, that it was likely um, in some cases that there would be these civilian casualties. And it was very unclear whether the ISIS fighters they thought they were getting were actually in the vicinity. And you're giving voice to the people who are actually affected by it. And I just wonder, as you were traveling around, whether you felt like there were larger implications for this whole question of waging war with drones. You know, we've been led to believe we're having these precision strikes, that this is the least costly way to wage war. And I wonder what you think about that at this point. It's the least costly way to wage war for Americans, least costly to American lives, least costly to American taxpayer dollars. But what that means is we've now shifted those costs, the human costs, over to foreign populations. It's our foreign partners, Iraqi forces, Syrian forces, Afghan forces, that paid those human costs, and it's civilians who've paid those human costs. Part of the point of this reporting was to try to showcase that the the myth or this idea of the drone as being the innovation in warfare is not what I found. 
Do you think that the Pentagon was making an honest, in their own mind, an honest and sincere effort to avoid civilian casualties? Or really the effort was just cursory and bureaucratic and that it was, that they weren't really thinking about it as they were carrying out drone strike after drone strike? Were they bad at it or were they, they were trying, but they were bad or they weren't really trying? I've met so many people who talk about this and who truly care, right? Like they certainly want to reduce civilian death you know, men and women who are service members who, you know, agonize over some of the decisions they make. That is entirely true. But the, the decisions they make are not up to them alone, right? They're codified in these processes. The Pentagon's processes, when you look at them, you know, they may seem valuable on a certain level, but when you start to see patterns of, you know, not investigating on the ground, of not trying to identify lessons learned and to study them, it seems like it's built almost by design. And, you know, it it seems almost to function as a system of impunity, not just to mask the true toll, but to provide a sense of legitimacy to the American public, to the global community that we have this superior system. But when you look at, for example, Raqqa, which the United States led the air war in, and you look at Aleppo, which Russia led the air war in, and you see that both cities are in ruins, and one nation used what was supposed to be a model of accountability in its targeting and procedures, and the other showed a blatant violation of most of that, um, Russia. It's hard not to ask yourself what these systems and processes are intended to do if it's really about preventing civilian loss. One of the details that emerges in your story is a lack of compensation for survivors. And you say at one point that you told people you could include their contact information if they wanted to communicate their whereabouts to the U.S. government, but that the U.S. government has not gotten in touch with any of the people um, whose contact information you provided. And I just wonder what you think about this piece of it. Is this lack of compensation because the government just doesn't want to admit its responsibility? Is it just callousness toward the impact of people's lives? Like, how should we understand this lack of compensation? And do you think there's any chance that it could change in the wake of your story? This was something I went into great depth about several years ago in a in another piece in the New York Times Magazine called The Uncounted. And my reporting in in that investigation led to the first payment offer in the anti-ISIS air war that they had made for civilian death or injury. And this was to a man named Basim Razo. And you can offer at least, I think they're capped at around $2,500 per death. And so this man who lost his wife, his daughter, his brother and his nephew was presented with something that he was told was even above what they were capped at and it was $15,000, he turned it down. And this took incredible effort for him to even get a face-to-face meeting in this offer. This doesn't happen anymore, especially because we have very few troops on the ground. So this was the first time it was done, and I think that after that, you know, the fact that their awareness that maybe the payments are paltry to begin with, that people might reject them, you know, may have played a role in them feeling like, well, it's maybe not worth it for us. You know, another factor could be the fact that they just don't have, they believe they don't have the capacity to do it without systems on the ground. And then a last one maybe that, you know, they've kind of shifted, I think, in part towards thinking that their partner governments should be the ones to distribute or be involved in those kinds of compensation programs. And it's something that I plan on writing about more in the future because I don't, you know, I've, I've heard the argument, and I've been thinking about this a lot, which is that would America be better if it did have to pay more? Would its systems and processes be better if it actually did have to pay a penalty? Hmm. I, I don't know the answer to that, but it's, it's certainly, you know, worth, you know, uh, talking about more. I'm going to jam two questions. One is, does this, these policies span Republican and Democratic administrations? Right? Or was there a difference? And who is responsible for setting the level of tolerance for civilian casualties? Because there's the misunder- misreporting, the bad intelligence, the not investigating. But there's also some level of civilian casualty that somebody somewhere has decided is okay given 
the benefits of getting rid of X number of ISIS fighters. Where does that calculation get made and who, who sets the math? Right. So there's a really, you know, I started doing this work, the, the work that we're talking about right now back in 2016. So during the Obama administration, and I was looking at mass casualty incidents, then I was, you know, pitching these stories, talking to people about them. But I, to be frankly honest with you, I don't think there was a great deal of interest among many or even just public attention on this issue until Trump came into office. And it is true that he changed rules. There were some changes about who could authorize airstrikes, who could call them in. But this problem occurred far before that. Certainly, I think you can see how the Obama administration, because of a desire to extricate itself from some of these wars, withdrew troops and then ramped up airstrikes. Uh, That was part of the strategy. You've seen it continue And I often get asked questions about, you know, who played more of a role or how much did Trump play? And I think in many ways it's it's deeper than that. It's rooted in the system that exists. And in terms of who sets those numbers, I mean, these are, you know, the Pentagon itself has what's known as a non-combatant cutoff value, civilian um, casualty cutoff value, an NCV rate of what it tolerates or what is acceptable or considered proportional before it has to go through a higher approval process. So as long as it's underneath that rate, then whoever the target engagement authority, the person charged with authorizing that strike, it's completely up to their discretion whether or not something is proportional. Wait, so I was can, told... Can, mm-hmm. Sorry, that's a super quick nerdy question. Is that rate an absolute number or a ratio? It's a, it's a good, that's a great question. I know it to be a fluctuating number based on location, um, time and battle, things like factors like that. My understanding, you know, something that I have been told by sources is that for a long period during the anti-ISIS campaign in a place like Mosul, that number was 10. Um, You know, I've heard that it may have been as high as 13 at some point, but that by no means, you know, as I get into in the reporting, they routinely failed to predict civilian death accurately, right? So they were coming in, you know, their estimates were far lower than what the true numbers would actually be all of the time, which kind of calls into question this idea of a, a rate of a, I'm sorry, of a number to begin with. And at the same time, it's only based on like reasonable certainty. So it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, the information available to them. And as long as it's underneath that number, it's just entirely within that command, you know, that particular person who's authorizing it, um, understanding of what proportionality is, as long as it's reasonable to them. Asma, yeah. David mentioned at the outset that this is just a staggering feat of reporting. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what it was like to work on a project that spanned several years in which, um, as you described, you made a decision that the weight of the project, the weight of the reporting would be the highest if it was cumulative. You know, you had these reports coming out along the way, you had trips, you could have sort of sprinkled this reporting over time, and instead you decided to hold on to it until you felt like you really had your hands completely around it. And I wonder what that was like and um, how you were able to undertake a a project of this scope and scale. Yeah, that was a difficult decision, right? Especially when you're getting documents that are revealing you know, there were moments in time where I grappled with, well, should I do a news story, a smaller news story just on this document? Um, but the reality is, is that after years of having done this reporting, I knew how wrong the records could be. And it felt like it would be a journalistic disservice knowing what I did and the capacity I now had for investigating on the ground. And frankly, knowing that nobody else would do it in a systematic manner, not because of any deficiencies on the part of journalists, but because it is an overwhelming undertaking, right, that takes years of preparation, that that actually I could do this and I should do this. And that publishing documents, a military document alone, would be probably a disservice because the reality on the ground I had seen so many times had been different. And so it was a choice to do it that way. Fortunately, in the beginning, it was extremely scrappy. Like, I remember I cashed out my retirement to do this and, you know, did whatever I could to and applied for grants. And the first part of it was hard, but, you know, eventually 
you know, once people saw the results of the first two-year investigation, like it was a lot easier to get funding or to get a Carnegie Fellowship or, uh, you know, the kinds of support that I had to make this possible and to do it in this particular way and to get like an investment from the Times as well. Azmat Khan published an extraordinary series in the Times this week, The Human Toll of America's Air War. Azmat, thanks for coming on the GabFest. Thank you for having me. It means so much, really. Like, I I don't think people talk about war enough, and the fact that you're doing so in a with a community like this is such an important place to, to put this. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. As we tape, I am in a COVID limbo. I've got COVID-infected children who are uh, breathing the air of my apartment around me. And uh, I feel probably I'm, I'm Omicroned up too, but don't know yet, past my last test. But everybody I keep hearing about is positive. My son's entire basketball team is positive. It's just a crazy moment where, where, where suddenly, at least in certain parts of the country, and it looks like it's going to be in the big northeastern cities, there is a sense that, that Omicron has just absolutely swept through. People are upending their holiday plans. There are desperate lines for tests. I waited an hour for a test yesterday. There, that was with an appointment. There's just like practically a black market in, in tests, at least where I live, where people are like, I can get you a rapid. I can get you a rapid. How much can you pay? It's just a mess. It's arrived just in time to dash everyone's hopes for, for a nice holiday. Emily, has this revealing any greater failures than we already knew we had? I mean, is this, is this pandemic now a political story or is it just like, wow, here we are. This is epidemiology. This is, this is mother nature. This is just what happens. And we knew it was going to happen. And here it is. And, but it doesn't really have anything to do with politics. I guess the policy failure I see right now are the lack of rapid tests, relative lack in the United States, and the lack of urgency on the part of the government. I feel like people have been calling for many more rapid, cheap, te- or free tests for many months now. And I find that to be kind of just, I don't get that. Uh, although, can I, can, I, can I actually, can I just make one small point yeah. in there? Which is that as somebody whose family has all passed a bunch of rapid tests, Omicron is so different, though. It's so fast-moving that even with a rapid test, there's this whole period where you probably have got it germinating, gestating, and you're just not going to catch. It's just moving so rapidly that testing itself doesn't feel like it's actually that effective a strategy, right, the second. That's interesting. I mean, we can wish that everybody had gotten vaccinated earlier and wonder if that could have prevented this mutation or certainly just protected a lot more people. I mean, it seems to me we're at this moment, there's sort of two things I've been thinking about a lot. One is what do vaccinated people owe unvaccinated people? Because those are the people who are so much more likely to get really sick or die. And the second is whether there is something just mysterious about this virus that we don't understand. It's not a morality tale, in fact. And, you know, in South Africa, where Omicron first started spreading, it seemed that there were going to be many, many more cases than have actually been tracked. And the hospitalization rates have actually been relatively low. And we don't know why those things are. I really recommend an interview that David Wallace-Wells did in New York Magazine with Trevor Bedford where Bedford puts out various explanations, you know, maybe they're just not testing everybody so that it actually is a bigger wave. Maybe it's multiplying so rapidly that in the way you were describing, David, that actually it's not that the reproduction rate is so much higher. It's that the doubling is happening so fast and then it actually somehow is crashing faster. Who knows? And so I feel like we're just sort of staring into the this barrel right now in the United States, we don't know whether we're going to have a similar, incredibly fast, not that severe wave, or whether it's going to keep going and totally engulf our hospitals. And I am kind of back at the point I was in at the relative beginning of COVID of just wanting the hospitals to hold up. I feel so terrible for all these healthcare workers who've been under such tremendous strain. And I'm kind of back to that as my marker of success or failure. For me, the failure of this round is that we're this long into it and we don't have a faster sorting mechanism to explain where we are right now. And I thought um, Derek Thompson did a pretty good job of that. 
which is to basically walk through where the challenges are. The real challenges of this moment are for people who are unvaccinated or people who are vaccinated and in one of the risk groups and for the hospital system. And so a lot of the coverage, like when they talk about the numbers, which are striking, the CDC reported 290,000 cases on Tuesday, which is the second most new infections. If your mindset is in the original days of COVID, you think of the number of infections as being so much more dangerous than now, when you can have a lot of infections, but they're not as, quote unquote, serious as we would have taken them in the original days. Because people have immunity, because many people have immunity. Because we have immunity, because if you you can test positive, but if you've been vaccinated, you're going to have very low symptoms or no symptoms at all, whereas that was not the case when people were getting hooked up to ventilators and we were running out of them in the early days. And that we haven't found a way to give a sense of context with these numbers really fast after being here for so long is frustrating. But your point, Emily, is the right one, which is that what we're facing is these extraordinary numbers, which means even if, as it appears to be, Omicron is um, less dangerous, it's replicating so fast and spreading so fast that even at that lower level of danger, you can still overwhelm the hospitals, which is not only about the individuals in the hospitals, but all the other surgeries that are being now postponed and all the other care that's being postponed. Yeah. I mean, some part of me thinks, well, a fantastically transmissible, but if not very virulent, like is not, that's not the worst outcome that we could have. Like that could be okay. Could, well, could especially get, if it provides immunity for future provi- variants. If it provides, right, if it provides immunity. I mean, right now for, for my family so far, thank goodness, like my, my kids are minimally sick at all, uh, if at all. So that's, that's nice. Um, but as you say, John, like, you know, not everyone is vaccinated. And there are some people, a percentage of people who are vaccinated who, even if this is a milder, are still going to get very sick. And if huge numbers of people are infected, even if the percentages who get very sick is very low, that's still an enormous number for for a health system. It stresses the health system not only by creating more patients, but also by having nurses and doctors get a positive test, which means they've got to stay home, which means your workforce shrinks to take care of those new numbers. Right. Emily, I can already feel the tingle of schools closing back up, which is going to be maddening when it happens. It's already happening in small ways. There are some systems that have shut individual schools or some schools that have announced delayed reopenings post Christmas. It's going to be infuriating when this happens because all the evidence is that this has been an absolute disaster for kids educationally. We cannot allow this to happen again. It cannot happen again. It must not happen again. Yeah. I mean, I was heartened that I was watching this on Twitter yesterday and seeing more messaging against schools closing that I remember in previous waves. And Ashish Jha from Brown University, who's been a big voice in this, was saying that anywhere that keeps restaurants and bars open and closed schools is not just unfair and deeply unjust to kids, but also is not preventing COVID because we know now that schools relative to bars and restaurants play such a minor role in transmission. You know, I think that because transmission with Omicron seems so swift that that part of it may be different this time. And then you have to factor in the hospitalization rate and the severity in order to make a different set of choices for kids. It just has to be the absolute last resort. I'm taking some comfort in the fact that this is winter break. And so while it's terrible for people gathering with their families and for travel, Kids are already out of school. I do worry, though, David, you're right, that they're going to lose like another week, at least in January, which is bad. And if it extends beyond that in any sustained way, like that is just so shameful. Emily, I want to close this segment by going back to the the point you started with, but you didn't really address. So I'm going to ask you about it pointedly. What do the vaccinated owe the unvaccinated? Like, is it just fuck them? And what does that mean in practical terms? I find this so hard. I mean, of course not, like, not just screw them because they're human beings. The question is, how much does everybody else have to sacrifice? What do we do as a society to protect them? Or is it more on them at this point to protect themselves? And what I find so hard about this is that 
It seems like it is the parts of the country with a higher percentage of unvaccinated people that are taking the least precautions, <laughs> right? Whereas, so in the places that have higher vaccination rates, people are more likely to be, you know, wearing masks even outside, certainly when they go indoors, like to go shopping. And I, I think some of those precautions right now make sense. But when it comes to things that are really going to affect people's lives in ways that really cost them, then it seems to me like at this point, we should be expecting unvaccinated people to be protecting themselves if they believe that COVID is real, because I think some of them don't really. Of course, this is complicated by the people who are immunocompromised or are very elderly and have done their utmost to protect themselves and yet are at risk. And my kind of hope is that this wave is going to be swift enough that if they have to take more precautions and stay away from people, it won't be some sustained period of isolation, which is really costly and debilitating for them. But we don't know. I'm not sure that I'm around very many unvaccinated people, but I was with someone who told me that she was unvaccinated over the weekend. And I kind of didn't know what to do because on the one hand, I was like, kind of couldn't believe it. And on the other hand, I didn't want to be really rude. And anyway, it just is a dilemma. But what would you do? I mean, you're greater risk to that person than they were to you. I put a mask on. Okay. It so wasn't that, so bad. But that bad. was your choice. It was yeah. your choice to do that. You didn't have to do that. You did it. Well, I could have left. For your, it was for your protection? No. Well, I just, I honestly think that I got confused in the moment about the risk. Like, I felt a lot of concern. And I would say uh, this is not, like, concern for my own health so much as wanting to be able to take a trip to see family this week. And we're not going to be able to go if one of us gets COVID. And I don't want to expose the older people in the family. So that's what I was thinking about. I think I more just had some thought of like, should I just say like, I'm leaving because I think that what you're doing is wrong and I want to sort of like make a statement about that. But I totally didn't do that. I like was completely polite because there was this other part of me that just felt kind of hopeless. I wasn't going to convince her by something I was doing. You know, that feeling you had in the moment, Emily, is obviously something we're all wrestling with because in the early days of COVID, you would have worried perhaps for your own safety because you were unvaccinated. You know, you didn't have this shield. So you kind of have to forget that first way of thinking from the first stage of this. And then you think, well, I'm more of a danger to them than they are to me. But then as you both just reasoned your way towards, but there are other humans in the world that if I become a carrier, I'm going to hurt. We went through the exact same thing. We were exposed. We have grandparents who we then could have further exposed even though they were double vaccinated and boosted because the person who we were exposed to who has it was double vaccinated and boosted. And so first thing we did when we got off the plane was go get tested and we'll probably test again. Thinking through all of that again is wearying. And I don't know what we would do differently if I had a different moral stance against the people we're around who are unvaccinated. But I do think at the end it would be great to come to some kind of conclusion about what this says about us more broadly. Because while we're going through the mental gymnastics to think about all the cycles of people or circles of people, we might be affecting the person who doesn't care enough to get vaccinated, who we're worried about their health for them, the people we might come into contact with who are immunocompromised. There's a whole other group of people in the nation, 68 million are unvaccinated at the moment. Some number of those are for reasons that have to do with anything more than just their kind of personal views. And you'd think if there was something that would change people's minds, it would be the mountain of data, and it hasn't. And that seems to me to say something really fundamentally worrying about where we are as a society. So my husband, who is, I think, a nicer person than I am, has been saying, well, look, a lot of people aren't vaccinated are believing leaders who are deluding them and they're kind of enthralled to these lies and misinformation and essentially like it's not their fault. And I don't know. I'm kind of losing patience with that, but I I admire him for saying it. Yeah. Well, whether it's their fault or not. What do we do? Well, A, what do we do? And always, whenever I've been asked, how do we sort of get past this uh, moment we're in in America where certain factions seem to be at each other's throats, I have perhaps too patly said, well, if there's a true crisis, 
we'll see Americans rally because, you know, there's more that uh, unites us than divides us. We've faced it. And millions and millions and millions and millions of people are making a radically different choice. That seems a big chasm to manage. All right, but I want to say this. I, I certainly think that people who are not getting vaccinated are making a selfish and mistaken choice. I think it is it would be the height of hubris and arrogance to take a moral high ground against those people as they're making a bad choice. But like you have no idea. These people may be incredible contributors to their community in other ways. There are all kinds of ways which you and I are selfish. I'm like a selfish fuck. I'm a selfish person who like rarely acts in in the public good. And I don't and I just think the fact that I'm vaccinated does not speak does not say anything about me as a person. I'm not saying that you guys are saying this. I'm not making that claim. I just think it's very dangerous to to exist too much in a sense of moral high ground over the unvaccinated at this moment. Totally. I think it is like people are complicated and they 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 act in their own interests generally, but how they interpret those interests are wildly different and the way they are do good in the world is wildly different and like just because one got vaccinated does not make you better than someone who didn't get vaccinated. That couldn't be more important to say. Well, we're discussing two different things. One is the moral issue, and one is a collective action issue. They're kind of distinct. Well, and the implications of this of not participating in this particular piece of collective action are staggering for the society. Not your own tiny individual choice, but all those millions of people added up are a large factor in where we are right now, which is an incredibly defeating, downward spiral, exhausting yeah. place. So, you know, like they bear some responsibility yes. for that. Yes, yes, yes. Well, but I guess what it, maybe the way I would put it is this says a huge amount about our society and not very much about individuals. You guys disagree. No, I think it says a significant amount of individuals. No, no, I, I think don't know what it says about each person. I think that's hard, but I don't think it says nothing. And it also depends on the individual circumstances, because as many people, as you say, and you're quite right, who have devoted themselves to the public good their entire lives, but choose not to get vaccinated, there are plenty of people who have not and aren't vaccinated. So you can always find an example of whichever position you want to attack is morally shallow. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. John Dickerson, when you're eggnogging away with some micro Dickersons this week, what will you be chattering to them about? Perhaps it was because the conundrum show put me in a uh, contemplative mood, or perhaps it's because I'm stuck in that mood all the time. But I've been um, listening to slash reading The Power of Meaning uh, by Emily S. Fonny Smith, uh, which I think is a very good book uh, on this topic. We've talked about it before, Man's Search for Meaning being a book that's meant a lot to me. And in that book, I was introduced to a book by Will Durant, which is um, On the Meaning of Life, which is a book that the um, historian philosopher wrote by sending a note in July of uh, 1931 to eminent Americans at the time, essentially saying, we're all screwed, all of our reason has gotten us nothing but confused, and... um, we're basically a scourge and pestilence on the earth. So what is it that keeps you going during the day? And the responses from Theodore Dreiser, H.L. Mencken, and others are amusing, illuminating, thought-provoking. So I recommend both books to all our listeners, particularly after The Conundrum Show, which I think will really pretty much rewire the way you think about this essential question of why we're Wait, The Conundrum Show will rewire? Really? It was a good show. <laughs> I know. I was. That's a good I was sell. Trying to, like, yeah. log roll for us a little. <laughs> you starting a new religion, John? You gonna is your cult taking exactly? <laughs> we get to be apostles. orders in that new religion. Emily, what's your chatter? I am thinking a lot about a decision the Justice Department made to let almost three thousand people stay on home confinement who'd been released from federal prison early based on emergency orders during the pandemic. The Trump administration thought and was arguing that the law required them to go back to prison when the emergency was over. And last August, the Biden Justice Department 
agreed with that position and has just this week overturned it. So for this nearly 3,000 people, this is a huge boon over the holidays. These are people who got out early and a lot of them have jobs. They're with their family. They have not been rearrested for anything. It's just also really interesting natural experiment in what happens if you release people early and you sort of let them know that they're getting this new lease on life and what kind of behavior can you expect from them. So I'm also looking forward to whatever studies some economists come up with to compare this group of folks to other people leaving prison or acquired to stay in prison. And, you know, for them personally, these are often people who were serving very long sentences for drug crimes. And so they will be staying home. It's interesting that you said your instinct was that that study would be done by economists. That's not well, there's who a I lot of really interesting I, I economists work, right? Because it's like a natural experiment where you can compare. Yeah, there's this. Yeah, there are a bunch of economists doing really interesting stuff on this. My chatter uh, is actually it's HBO Max is just crushing it. They are on a roll. They've got HBO's got totally insecure. They've got Succession. They have Station Eleven, all of which I've been taking enormous pleasure in and many other shows as well but i just want to call out one that probably not a lot of gabfest listeners are watching which is hard knocks in season about the indianapolis cult so hard knocks is a show that hbo has done historically where it covers the preseason training camp at nfl teams it's totally whitewashed and propagandistic and you know doesn't reveal much much of what i'm sure is hard and nasty and depressing about life as an NFL player and life and, and how awful the owners and coaches are. I will posit that. But it's always ended at the end of training camp. And so you never got to see what teams were like during the season. This year, they are showing what a team is like, the Indianapolis Colts, during a season and watching them as they lose games, win games, you know, see them on the sidelines, see them during their team meetings before games. And they're not giving away secrets. They're not saying our play call is this and here's exactly what we're doing. They don't, they're holding the secrets back but you get a lot of texture about life in the nfl and it's great really vivid you get to hear the refs chit chat you get inside the team meetings and it's uh if you're an nfl fan i i cannot recommend this show enough listeners you too have sent us chatters you've tweeted them to us at, at slate gabfest and you've emailed them to us at gabfest at slate.com and one of the in fact the pleasures of 2021 has been all of the wonderful listener chatters you've sent us been fantastic and we're so grateful and we hope you keep that up in 2022 and i want to point us now to our listener chatter for this week which comes from mo trent hey gabfest this is mo from buffalo new york i've been chattering about a favorite website of mine called stuff in space it's a fun visualization of all the stuff in orbit around earth right now satellites old rocket bodies and other space junk it's humbling fascinating and terrifying all at once I've been thinking about it because of the Russian anti-satellite missile launch last month where they blew up an old Soviet satellite orbiting at about 300 miles. This created more than 1,500 pieces of debris traveling at speeds around 17,400 miles per hour, and some of their trajectories actually crossed paths with the ISS. Most of this debris is expected to stay in orbit for years. I highly recommend looking up the Kessler syndrome to learn about what happens if the orbits closest to Earth get too cluttered. Thanks. It is a really fun visualization, stuff in space. And also, as Mo suggests, kind of depressing or worrisome. Not depressing, worrisome. Like so much of things today. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, our researchers, Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest. Tweet chatter to us there or email it to us at gabfest at slate.com. Next week... Dear ones, we have our conundrum show. We look forward to your response to that. Please let us know what you think of that, too. And we'll be with you in the new year for Emily, Bazelon, and John Dickerson. Have a happy, happy new year. Can't wait to talk to you in 2022. Hello, Slate Plus. How's it going? Happy almost new year. Happy holiday to you. We are going to talk about two years of our life, the year that was most useless to us in our formal education and the year that was most useful to us in our formal education and why. Emily, your most useful year. 
the year I was four, I was, I guess, four and a half. I was too young to go to kindergarten. And my parents decided to send me to a school with a pre-K called Oak Lane Day School outside of Philadelphia. And I had an amazing teacher named Anne Labori. And she taught me how to read. And I actually remember those first, like, phonetic books and how much joy and pleasure I took in reading, which I have just kept with me my whole life. And that year, I I just remember it really well, like more than I remember the rest of elementary school or many other years. And I feel like that love of reading has probably meant more to my education and life and pleasure and professional development than anything else. It was amazing, that first book, Principles of Constitutional <laughs> Law. Good joke. <laughs> Questionable execution. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> John, what was your most useful year? Oh. Um, well, the, Emily's put me in a reflective mood because I was going to say that. GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today.